Amen. Turn to the Gospel of Luke with me. Chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. Luke chapter 1, verses 39 through 56. It's part of the Advent narrative. Luke writes, At that time Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is a child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. This is God's word. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to this time and to your word and ask that you would speak through your word by your spirit, a word in season that we need to hear. Speak to everyone here, coming, hungry, to hear a word from you. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a gray, rainy day, and sometimes it's hard to believe it's December, but there are telltale signs that Christmas is coming. It's the pop-up Christmas tree lots. It's Starbucks starting to serve their holiday beverages. It's Home Depot, if you've been there, putting out their Christmas merchandise. It's red wreaths on the doors. And perhaps the earliest telltale sign in my observation is Christmas music in stores. I think it was before Thanksgiving, I actually heard my first Christmas carol at a store. And it's very interesting to me. It's one time of the year through this music at stores that Jesus is proclaimed in public places and no one bats an eyelash. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Gloria in excelsis Deo. O holy night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Music is a big part of this holiday season, and so perhaps it's fitting that our sermon series for the Advent season this year is going to be songs for the Savior, the first Christmas hymns in history, sung by the first characters of the first Christmas at Jesus' birth, the Magnificat, the Benedictus, Gloria in Excelsis Deo, and Nunc Dimittis. This morning, we are going to look together at the Magnificat, the song that Mary sang after the angel Gabriel told her that she was going to bear the Son of God into the world. And Mary hurried off to visit her relative Elizabeth, who confirmed this profoundly good news. And in response, Mary sings the Magnificat. It's so named because that's the first word of the song in the Latin translation. This song comes from the depth of Mary's being. He says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Comes from the depth of Mary's being. It is a song of joy, a clear theme of this passage. 
when Mary visits Elizabeth, the baby in her womb leaps for joy. And then verse 47 at the beginning of the song, Mary rejoices in God my Savior. The Magnificat is a song of joy that makes the heart sing and the heart leap for joy. I wonder, what makes your heart sing? What makes your heart leap for joy? When a team wins the Super Bowl, you will see large grown men leaping for joy. When we applied for the Lilly Grant for a summer sabbatical for me, the main application question, question was this, what makes your heart sing? The Lilly Grant wanted to fund sabbatical activities that are restorative for pastors that make their hearts sing. So I pondered this. What are the things that make my heart sing? And in our application, we came up with three words, beauty, family, and rest. And we planned a sabbatical uh, rest for me and for our church family that, that focused on experiences of beauty and family and rest. And I look back at that summer as a summer that made my heart sing. I'm very grateful for your support and for the Lilly Grant. We love moments when our hearts leap for joy, don't we? We love moments when our hearts sing for joy. What if you can't win a Super Bowl? What if you can't take a grant-funded sabbatical? Where do you experience this kind of heart-leaping, heart-singing joy? Well, the Magnificat tells us. Mary is inviting us here into her song of joy. It's the birth of Christ that brings her joy. That's what I'm going to focus on this morning. It's the birth of Christ that brings Mary joy. This Magnificat wells up from Mary, but it's not about Mary. It's about God. Notice with me, God is the subject of almost every verb in the Magnificat. Mary experiences joy in these three things about God that I want to draw out and lay before us this morning. She experiences the eyes of God, the arm of God, and the heart of God. That's what leads her to joy. That's what makes her heart sing. The eyes of God, the arm of God, and the heart of God shown at the birth of Christ. First, the eyes of God. Mary begins her song. The soul, my soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Why? Why is her heart so full of joy? She says this, verse 48, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. This word mindful is a verb for looking or considering. So some translations will translate this. He has looked on my humble state. Mary rejoices because God's eyes have looked on her in her humble state. Here's Mary. She knows who she is. She's at the bottom of society. She is an unmarried version of a, a virgin of about 12 or 13 years old, so she has very little social status in the first century. She's poor. We're told a little further on in the story that she and Joseph offer two pigeons when they present Jesus in the temple. This is a sacrifice of poor people. She and Joseph are both very poor. She calls herself a servant, which literally is slave. She recognizes who she is. She has no social standing, no reputation, no wealth. She is a nobody in this world. And yet God, the creator of the world, the God of Israel, looks upon her with favor. I mean, in many religions, you have to be great. You have to do something great to get the attention of the deity. But in Christianity, God takes the initiative. He sees Mary in her humble estate and looks on her and moves toward her. And this makes Mary's heart sing. 
She sings, from now on all generations will call me blessed. That God has chosen a teen nobody to bear his son into the world. So on the one hand, I think Protestants probably don't give Mary enough to. She says, all generations will call me blessed. She is a model of how God's grace can transform a humble life. So Protestants, we probably don't give Mary her enough due, but Catholics probably give her too much due because she does rejoice in God, my Savior. She's a sinner in need of a Savior. And so the balance is appreciating Mary without worshiping her because Mary is an example of God's eyes looking in favor on the most humble of people. And she's not the only one. If you recall the genealogy from Matthew 1, this long list of people whom God uses to bring his son, Jesus, into the world, there are some surprising candidates included in this genealogy. There's Rahab, the Canaanite prostitute. There's Ruth, the Moabitess. There's Tamar, who tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her, this act of incest. There's David and Bathsheba, the wife of one of his mighty men with whom he had an affair. All that to say God uses humble outsiders to bring his son Jesus into this world. Prostitutes, racial outsiders, and adulterous, moral failures. And the Magnificat is bearing witness to this reality. That there is no one who's too much of a nobody. There's no one who's too much of an outsider. No one who's too small or too insignificant or too forgotten to be looked on with favor by the God of the universe. Mary knows that her story can be our story because she sings in verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him. When you surrender to God as Mary did, when the angel Gabriel told her what was going to happen, she would bear the, the Son of God into this world, it was wonderful but challenging. I mean, she would uh, have a stigma and, and social shame for, for bearing a, a baby out of wedlock. She surrenders to the Lord. She says the angel Gabriel, may it be to me as you have said. She surrenders to the Lord. And when we surrender to God as Mary does, the Magnificat says God can use us. No matter who we are, no matter what our background, we're all looking for some kind of story like this to live by. Of course, there are a lot of stories in this world of humble people rising up to do great things. Here's one example. Gordon and Carol Siegel were married in the summer of 1961. For their wedding, they didn't get any gifts they loved. They saw some European dishware in the department store, but they or their family could not afford things like that. When they were honeymooning in the Caribbean, they noticed a store in the Virgin Islands that carried Scandinavian place settings at an affordable price. They scooped them up. They bought some, and they asked the Danish store owner how he was able to do this. And he said, well, salespeople come to me, and they would buy direct from the European factories. Gordon and Carol returned to Chicago, where Gordon worked in real estate. Carol was teaching school. And one night, Gordon was washing the dishes that they had bought on their honeymoon. And he said to Carol, there must be other couples like us with good taste, but no money. We should open a store. They had a dream to buy nice things in Europe and make them available at an affordable price, because in those days, there was no IKEA. The only way to get European-style furniture and nice European things was to be wealthy. 
Corey and Carol had some sales experience from their families, were in retail and re the restaurant business, but they were only 23 years old. And they only had $10,000 in savings. They figured they needed $20,000 to start a store, but there were no venture capitalists in those days. They couldn't find anyone to lend them money and invest in them. The only one who gave them money was Gordon's dad, who gave them $7,000, probably all the cash he had at that time. That meant they had $10,000 to buy inventory, $7,000 to build a store. They found an old elevator factory to rent for $350 a month, and they had to find a cheap way to turn it into a Scandinavian store. They went to a lumber yard and found old crating lumber, which they hammered vertically on the wall by themselves all night long. To display the merchandise, they found a way to stack the barrels and crates in which the merchandise was shipped to make a display. And two weeks before opening, a friend of theirs was visiting and suggested that they call their store, store Barrel and Crate. And Carol heard that and said, no, Crate and Barrel would be better. And so it opened. In the first year, they made 100000 In the second year, 200000 In the third year, 300000 Today, Crate and Barrel makes $1.2 in sales. They've gone from one employee to 7,000 employees. And Gordon Siegel, looking back on that, says at the beginning, they had no plan no ambition, and never imagined what would happen when they started in an old elevator factory with a few thousand dollars. It's a wonderful story. It's an amazing startup story. We'd all love to live that story. We'd all love to be included in the crate and barrel story. But the problem is a high percentage of startups fail. And so where do we find a story that can, that can give our lives meaning and purpose and hope? That's what we need. We're all looking for a story to live in. And the problem is that the stories that our culture is offering us to live by are increasingly thin and shallow. There's a story of atheism, that there's no story. Life just random. It's no purpose. Just enjoy the moments. There is the sexuality and gender narrative. Look within and create your own identity. But the problem is when I look in, when we look in, we see desires that are constantly shifting and changing. It's hardly a strong foundation to build an identity on. And there's a political narrative. Find your political tribe and then shout down all your opponents. Sounds like a recipe for becoming an angry person. Then there's a beauty narrative. Make it your life's pursuit have the perfect body and to be able to put up those perfect Instagram posts. You know, if you can do that, it lasts for a few years because age eventually catches up and makes beauty elusive. Many are beginning to say that the problem that we face in the West, the critical problem that we face, is a lack of meaning, an identity crisis, and the anxiety of living in a world without a story to live by. And my friends, the Magnificat, is part of a greater, richer story. Mary is inviting us to find our meaning and purpose and identity in this story. There is a God who has created us and who redeems us. And when we surrender to him, includes us in this great redemptive story that he's writing. And so if you feel like a nobody or an outsider or moral failure, Surrender to him, and he will look on you with favor and give you a role and an identity and a purpose that will make your heart sing. This is what makes Mary's heart sing, is the eyes of God. Secondly, what makes Mary's heart sing is the arm of God. 
Look at verses 51 to 53. Mary sings, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. God's arm is this metaphor in Scripture for the supernatural power and strength of God. And so we see this scattered throughout Scripture, Jeremiah 27.5. With my great power and outstretched arm, God says, I made the earth and its people. Exodus 6.6. 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you up out of the, under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm, with mighty acts of judgment. Isaiah 40, see the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. Jeremiah 21, I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in furious anger and in great wrath. All that to say God is not distant, uncaring, uninvolved. He's very active and he intervenes in the lives of his people. God's mighty arm here is active in judgment and grace, destruction and deliverance, mercy and wrath. And here in the Magnificat, God's arm is active in scattering those who are proud in their inmost thoughts and bringing down rulers from their thrones, but also lifting up the humble and filling hungry with good, the hungry with good things. It is revolutionary language. It is a complete reversal of human values. And that's why these verses have been used to support liberation theology and human political revolutions that bring down rulers and lift up the oppressed. But I point out the Magnificat is not about a political revolution. It's not a call to arms. It's not what we do. It's about what God does. God is the subject of all these verbs. God is the one who brings down the proud and lifts up the humble. All that to say, by his mighty arm, God brings cultural renewal and gospel revolution. God is the one who turns the world upside down by his values, gospel values, and remakes a fallen world. Not through political power or military might, but through a baby born to a virgin in a small town. It's God's mighty arm and the promise of that that makes Mary's heart sing. In 1867, a Victorian poet, Matthew Arnold, published a poem called Dover Beach, which had these lines. The sea of faith was once, too, at the full and round earth's shore, lay like the folds of a bright girdle furled. But now I only hear its melancholy, long, withdrawing roar. Which is to say, back in the 19th century, Matthew Arnold saw the rise of reason and science and the Industrial Revolution and observe the receding of religion like the tide going out. And of course, that has only accelerated into our day. We hear about the new atheists led by people like Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, and Christopher Hitchens. We hear about the rise of the nuns, an increasing number of people who do not affiliate with any religion. We hear about the de-churching of America, the pews of the church emptying out in droves. We hear about a growing skepticism towards Christianity. Justin Brearley is a broadcaster, author, and speaker in the UK, and for 15 years he has hosted this interesting podcast called Unbelievable. In this space he tries to bring together leading Christian thinkers and leading atheists and bring them together in a dialogue about the Christian faith. 
So Justin Brearley has had a front row seat to these debates. And the effect of this over years, he says, has not weakened his faith, but fortified it. In fact, he observes this. He says, notably, in the past several years, the conversations have changed in tone and substance quite dramatically. The bombastic debates between militant atheists and Christian apologists have been far less frequent. And in their place have come increasing numbers of secular guests who are far more open to the cultural and social value of Christianity, even if they are not believers themselves. Justin Brearley has written a book on this entitled The Surprising Rebirth of Belief in God. Why New Atheism Grew Old and Secular Thinkers Are Considering Christianity Again. And in this book, he describes how the New Atheist movement, which gathered so much mo uh, public momentum in the 2000s, is now splintering and breaking apart. And that's combined with the fact that secular thinkers are beginning to wonder where the West is headed without the Christian narrative, when you subtract, subtract the Christian narrative. There is a growing recognition that cult the cultural fruits that we recognize and cherish, things like human dignity and rights, democracy, freedom of speech, compassion, that these things do not happen naturally by themselves automatically, but have specifically grown from the soil and the roots of Christianity. So, for example, Tom Holland, a British historian and not a Christian, who wrote the book Dominion, How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. Secular thinkers are recognizing this and beginning to wonder, when you get rid of the roots of Christianity, how long can you enjoy the fruits of it? Dustin Brearley wrote his book out of the belief that there may be, around the corner, a surprising rebirth of belief in God underway. To use the metaphor from Dover Beach, if the tide goes out, it eventually comes back in. The Magnificat says that the tide is going to come back one day. One day the sea of faith will come back and it will remake the shore. And the sand castles that the world has built will be washed away. The high places will be made low and the valleys will be lifted up and the rough ground made level. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. God's mighty arm promises a world remade and renewed. Injustices set right. Power imbalances corrected. Outsiders brought in. The hungry fed the world made new, and that makes Mary's heart sing. We live in a world filled with war and suffering and injustice and darkness and fears abounding. And to know that one day the tide is going to come in, that God's mighty arm will renew our culture, should make our hearts sing. The eyes of God and the arm of God make Mary's heart sing. And then lastly, the heart of God makes Mary's heart sing. Look at verses 54 and 55. Mary sings, He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. One commentator observes that all the words in these two verses, servant, remember, Mercy, promise, ancestors, Abraham. Point back to God's covenantal promises to his people and ultimately to God's heart. God's heart for his people is on display in these verses, especially in this word, mercy. 
It's rooted in the Old Testament word for God's covenant love, hesed. It's a word so rich it can't be translated by one English word. Hesed means God's loyal love, his steadfast kindness. The kindness you receive from your father and mother when everyone else has deserted you, they're still loving you and, and being kind to you. It's the loyal love of a spouse who sticks by you through thick and thin. This is God's covenantal love expressed in the covenant to Abraham back in Genesis 15 when he promised Abraham that his offspring would one day number like the stars and that all nations would be blessed through his offspring. And the Magnificat reveals in this glorious moment that God's covenantal promises will be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. He is that offspring of Abraham in whom the nations will be blessed. Jesus Christ. God's Son, born to be our Savior and our Redeemer. Through faith in Jesus Christ, who died on our behalf, we can be forgiven. In Jesus Christ, we can be looked on with favor by the God, by the God of the universe, even in our humble estate and moral failure. We, in Jesus Christ, can be looked on with favor. Through faith in Jesus Christ, we can be adopted into God's family and given a role in God's redemptive story. So we don't have to go out and create an identity. We can receive an identity far better than any one that we could create for ourselves that will give us eternal purpose and meaning and hope. The heart of God for his people makes Mary's heart sing. Eugene Peterson is a or was a Presbyterian minister, a theologian, an author, a poet, a pastor to pastors. His translation of the Bible, the message, sold over 20 million copies. And Eugene Peterson died in 2018. At his memorial service, his son Leif said that he used to joke with his dad and tell him that he only had one sermon and one message, even though he administered and wrote creatively for decades. Leif wrote in a poem for his dad at his memorial service. He said this, It's almost laughable how you fooled them, how for 30 years every week you made them think you were saying something new. They thought you were a magician in your long black robe, hiding so much in your ample sleeves, always pulling something fresh and making them think it was just for them. They didn't know how simple it all was. They were blind to your secret. I alone know your secret. I alone know what you've been doing, how you fooled them all, taking something so simple, something a child could understand, and making it into a career, a vocation, an empire. I know. Because for 50 years you've been telling me the secret. For 50 years, you steal into my room at night and whisper it softly to my sleeping head. It's the same message over and over, and you don't vary it one bit. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. And he's relentless. My friends, I think that's what makes Mary, Mary's heart late, that there is a God who loves us and is on our side and is coming after us relentlessly like a loving father, a faithful father. It's what the Magnificat is about, God's eyes looking on the humble with favor. It's about God's arm remaking the world. It's about God's heart loving his people with an everlasting love and keeping every last promise of his to them. 2,000 years is a long time to wait the covenantal promises to Abraham to come true, but this is evidence, the birth of Christ is evidence that God does not forget.
He keeps every one, last one of his promises. The birth of Christ is the evidence. And so I ask you today, in this moment, what makes your heart sing? What makes your heart leap for joy? Meditate on the Magnificat, on God's eyes and his arm and his heart for you. And your heart will sing and leap. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Magnificat, this great song of joy. Lord, would you help us in this season to enter into Mary's joy, to see what she saw, to feel what she felt, to believe what she believed, that your eyes look upon the humble with favor, that your arm promises to remake the world, that your heart is filled with an everlasting love for your people, and that you keep every last one of your promises. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.